And so I actually ended up dropping out of high school, not once, but twice. I never graduated. And while all my friends were off to college, I was living with my parents, gaming up to 16 hours a day in their basement. I remember I was, I was drunk when they handed me my son in the hospital. They didn't know I was drunk. I worked with people who could stay abstinent from crack cocaine. And then they went back to prison because they could not stay abstinent from marijuana. They will send inappropriate pictures, primarily of their body parts. Our teens will send back their naked pictures or partially naked pictures. I had overdosed in eighth grade. I think that was shortly after I was suspended. Our teens are going through their hardest life transition in a world of rapid change and information anarchy. These are their stories and the advice from experts dedicated to helping them. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. Back in 2006, Trey Anastasio, the lead singer of Fish, the frontman, the guitarist, was sent to drug court in Washington. And his experience through the drug courts ended up with him on Capitol Hill talking about the Washington Drug Court Program to professionals and to supportive members of Congress. And he spent about 14 months in the drug court system. And he talks about scrubbing toilets and cleaning fairgrounds. And at the time that he was speaking to Congress, he'd been sober for two and a half years. Uh, he had children, he was married, and because of his sobriety, he says they were able to celebrate their 15th wedding anniversary. And Trey's recovery demonstrated to a lot of people in Congress what prisons can't, and that is a program that works. Now, to be perfectly honest, in all my years of working in recovery and with adolescents, I don't know much at all about drug courts. I understand that there are some places with them, and I understand that it is an alternative to going through a punitive or a kind of let-you-off-the-hook judicial experience. And so my guest today is Dan Bennett, and he works in the drug courts. And we're going to use this time to get him to explain to us what that means, what these drug courts do, how kids end up in these drug courts. And if they really are working, what I want him to explain to us is, why isn't everybody doing them? So thank you for joining me, parents, teachers, and clinicians. This is Beyond Risk and Back. Dan, Good morning. thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time. Certainly. Certainly. Glad to be here. Dan, let's start with first, where are you working in the drug courts? Right now, I work exclusively with the adult drug court in Larimer County. I do groups in Fort Collins. Up until a little over a year ago, I was working also in the juvenile drug court in Larimer County. So give us a little bit of background, how you started in this work with adolescents and adults and addiction, and how you ended up in the drug courts. Well, I started out working at the Larimer County Mental Health Center in 1979, working as one of the regular therapists in the drug-free outpatient program they had. And while there, got a master's degree, stayed in the helping profession various different levels, either doing DUI therapy or individual counseling or groups, had the opportunity to work for about five years with folks with developmental disabilities, which was in many ways, though it sounds different from addiction, it's really not. They, they 
just need somebody to listen and we'll solve problems. And then I worked for a bit in a in an inpatient psychiatric hospital for 36 young men, um, more than half of whom had drug and alcohol problems as part of their getting admitted to the program. And then for four years, I was the adolescent therapist on three inhabited islands just north of Guam. Um, and that was essentially drug and alcohol work as well. They had quite a um, methamphetamine problem at the time, both for the adults and for the juveniles. So I got to continue with the drug and alcohol work there and came back to the States in 2003 and worked at Mountain Crest, the psych hospital in Fort Collins, and then 10 years ago went into private practice and was working out of an office, but had an opportunity to kind of stretch my wings a little bit and go work in the juvenile drug court. And then from there, I picked up doing groups for the adult drug court. So I've been at it in the drug court system now for about eight years. In the differences between, in, in all the experience you have, one of the things you told me in a, as an email is that you really love this drug court work, that it, it would be hard for you to um, kind of poo-poo it in any way, shape, or form because you really enjoy it. What is the major difference between working with addicts, adolescents, or adults in uh, traditional treatment and working in the drug courts? What are you finding is the major difference? My experience with the any of the drug courts is that decisions made about how to address whatever struggles either the teenager or the adult comes up against is run through a treatment thinking team. It, I'm typically the only one or maybe one of three treatment providers who are consistently at the meeting, which includes the judge and public defender, district attorney, probation officers, supervisors, the urine monitoring programs, mental health. We have a whole bunch of folks on the team. So when we run on to, okay, person name comes up on the docket, and um, we talk about how they've progressed between their last court appearance and the one that's coming up and decide what strategies we need to either to support or discourage um, poor, discourage poor thinking or encourage and support better thinking. Um, I think that it's that part of the magic of the drug court is that the treatment team makes a decision as a team and we're all, it's a level playing field. And that, at least in Larimer County, that's, that is one of the true assets of, um, that treatment model. So I can do therapy in the group. And I don't have to do any of the monitoring, whether or not they've shown up for testing or whether they're doing what they need to with work or school or whatever it might be. The monitoring falls to a different part of the team. The treatment falls to the therapist. And for me, having worked in a bunch of treatment settings, frequently the treatment provider is also a monitor. And it's difficult to really engage somebody in changing if I'm also the one that's going to be delivering some form of consequence. I'm looking that's not my role. 
I'm looking at a list of uh, requirements that defendants must fulfill while they're in. And this one happens to be from New York. And I'm seeing this list of things that defendants must do as they're going through drug court. There's an intake interview with a drug treatment court coordinator. So they have to complete a substance abuse evaluation. They submit to random drug screenings. They attend weekly drug treatment court sessions. They permit home visits by a probation officer. And then I hit this one that says be subject to a 10 p.m. curfew. And so I'm wondering, Is that one of the benefits of this, is that they can impose some requirements on defendants that the normal judicial or the punitive process cannot because these people are in counseling and we can then begin to visit things like Obviously, if if we're out late, that can trigger us because we usually use drugs or go drinking out late. So if we're in bed early, like like is that is that the theme of what's going on? This seems to be more of the mental health slant and support rather than the your criminal slant support. I know the obvious answer is of course, but as I'm looking at requirements, it seemed that all the way down to the requirements, they're unique to mental health and recovery. Um, except for that frequent and random urine testing, it may look very, very similar. However, we have a number of folks who work nights, so a 10 o'clock curfew is going to be moot. They go to work at 6, and they get off at 6. And we typically don't monitor curfew as much for adults. Now, with juveniles, we did. There were curfews. We were. It's even much tighter than that in Larimer County. It, there are four phases, and in phase one, the curfew was quite early. I think it was like six o'clock. Phase two was seven. Phase three was eight, with maybe nine o'clock on weekends. Phase four was nine, maybe ten on weekends. So certainly we want to get the juvenile out of the loop of running at night and sleeping through the day. And then they have to be actively involved in either work or school. That was with the juvenile program. That was just an inclusion. What about extracurricular activities for the for the juveniles? There's a lot of research saying that three o'clock to seven o'clock p.m. That three to seven after school and before dinner is kind of some golden hours for juveniles and what they the choices that they're able to make and if they're occupied with stuff. Um, were there any requirements in the drug courts about that time period? Certainly were. Um, obviously, in Larimer County, again, there were two groups a week that met during that magic time period. So there was twice a week groups and whatever other thing they needed to do for after school or getting ready for work or whatever it might be. Um, so let me walk through a few little bit more of the procedure, the trick, the magic for me with um, drug courts is frequent contact with the judge. In phase one, you're in front of the judge every week. Wow. Phase two, it's every other week. Now, that's not a bad thing. You might go and get rewards for the time for what you've done well. What would a reward look like? It's not like you can... Well, sometimes it's as simple as reaching into a random fish bowl or fish bucket, pulling out a reward that might be something from a gift basket, not worth much, but it's the accolades of your peers that we're after, that they're applauding you to have a good week above and beyond. 
later curfews, extended extended time with family and friends, with friends, not just family. Um, could be if if a person's doing well, then we're going to reward it. We're going to, and we also do the interview with the kid to say, okay, what's rewarding? So at various times we've tried to figure out what would be rewarding for the for the juvenile. And it's something that they would work for. So we figure out a reward system so that they can actually get something that would be relevant to them. Be that a bicycle or a skateboard or a whatever it might be. Where does the funding for these types of things come from? To, to buy a bicycle and to buy a skateboard and things like that. Whatever. A, a trip to the movies. Right. Well, Fort Collins and Larimer County is actually in a a really unique spot, I think, at this point, because there's a, a not-for-profit organization, the Larimer Court Support Program, and they have access to stuff, and they have access to money. And so if if the probation officer or treatment team approaches the support service and says, we sure would like to get movie tickets, they can... It may not be immediate, but they can work out being able to get those tickets. That they can work out being able to get um, just a night out, a night out with the family. Again, we want to establish, reestablish the role with the family. When you have a child or uh, an adult who's still living in your home, let's let's stick with adolescents just for a second, since that's mainly sure. what my audience is is listening for. And, and how, first of all, how do you find out if you have a drug court in your community? And then the second thing is, if there's a drug violation, does the drug court automatically take it or do you have to, does you and your child have to apply for it? It's something you need to be considered for. The charge, like with juveniles in Larimer County, it's misdemeanor offenses. It is not status offenses or it's misdemeanor offenses. Typically not felony. With adults in Larimer County, you have to have a felony. And it may or may not relate directly to, maybe a possession of a Schedule One narcotic, or it may be false information to a pawnbroker because you were pawning something that you didn't really own yourself to get money to procure. So there's a number of kind of paths and if you fail at probation because you just simply cannot stay clean, so you're failing your urine testing or not taking it at all, that may warrant a referral to the drug court team. So the public defender or lawyer is the one that would should bring up with the juvenile Drug court exists here. This may be a good program. Does the juvenile have to then go through an application process? Does, do they have to want it? If they're ambivalent, apathetic, does it fall through and they just end up in the judicial side? Um, first, it's a voluntary program. So okay. you, you do get screened and you, if you meet the qualifications for, yep, seems like it's a drug problem and drug court could help. You go through the outline, and here's what's offered, and here's how it's going to work, and it's a long-term commitment. We're talking about, with juveniles, it's at least nine months. With adults, it's about 18, minimally. So 
you're going to be involved for a long time. There's going to be a lot of testing for the urine. There's going to be groups. There's going to be frequent meeting with probation and monitoring and with the juveniles. The school gets contacted by the probation officer. The family gets contacted so that we have all the information as a treatment team to make good decisions. You had mentioned earlier that they see the drug, I'm sorry, they see the judge in drug courts once a week. Is that in a courtroom or is it a more casual setting? In Larimer County, it's in a courtroom. Judge wears the rope. In some counties, some jurisdictions, it's it's, uh, less formal. One of the things that I believe is true from my observing is that robe is the one that the kid listens to. And I can do a group, I can see two groups a week, an hour and a half a group. I'm spending a lot of time with them. They remember the three minutes with the judge. (laughs) (laughs) They, The one who has the robe is the one who has the power. But that's an awesome thing because then I can say as a therapist, you're writing the report. How can we help you write a good one? What is it that's keeping you from performing in a manner that will make you a success? So my defense attorney, uh, my public defender says, hey, there's a drug court. Let's look in it. The kid says, yeah, I'd much rather do that. Right. What is the benefit to the kid? Why would the kid want to choose it? Is it a, you know, aside from not going to jail. So let's take out the obvious. Um, but it could be a lot longer to go through drug court than it's going to be to just go serve two weeks in juvie. Right. Well, typically the the juveniles that are referred to drug courts are not facing two weeks in juvenile detention. They are facing a one to two year commitment at the Division of Youth Corrections. Okay. At DYC. So okay. We sweeten the pot. We sweeten the pot by saying, you know, you can avoid that. You can avoid that by a pretty intense form of probation. But you're still home, you're with your family, you get to keep your job, we can work with you. So, again, to look at it, that's with the juveniles. With the adults, a great number of them have a felony, obviously, to get into drug court. But the, the sentence is deferred. And so, you successfully complete drug court with a deferred sentence. The judge and the DA make the request that your pleas be withdrawn and your charges dismissed. And if you think about it as an adult, to have, yes, there was a felony arrest, but the charge was dismissed. That has a a much better um, long-term prognosis, obviously, because if you go and fill out a job application, have you ever been arrested for a felony? Yes. Please explain in the interview, charges were dismissed. So it it so, it gives a benefit of dismissal, but there is not a wiping of the file. There is not a wiping of the slate. Is that also true with um, the juveniles? They they come in on well, these charges, but when it's done, are, is it expunged? Well, it, and that depends too. It depends on the charges and when they're accrued. How old you may. Be at the time, typically if you turn 18, your juvenile record can get kind of closed. But you can go back to the judge after you successfully completed 
and get your record sealed. With the adults, if you become a, a productive member of society and wish to, you can appeal the court and it's reviewed by yet another judge to say whether your record gets sealed or not. If your record is sealed, all those restrictions that you would have had because of the felony are now sealed. Your felony arrest does not show up. So I can, I can tell you that one of my, one of my, um, peers, friends, whatever, um, did have a felony on his record for quite some time and has had it sealed, which means, yes, you're in, we know you're a contributing member. It's been 17 years since your last legal involvement. Your record's sealed, which means he can go to the wherever and purchase a firearm. Okay. Whereas the felony on the record, he cannot. Is it is it fair to say that this program, its contents, the idea behind it, the philosophy surrounding it, is it liberal in nature? Is is does the conservative environment tend to support this idea as well? I and this is just based on just raw assumptions. So bear with me if I say this sounds like a very sure. liberal idea, but is is this do the conservatives like this idea too? Is it getting good traction with bipartisan ideals? Interesting question. Interesting question. And so I think that the folks of a more conservative bent can look at the outcomes and say, you know, by giving folks the opportunity to get treatment for substance use, they do the recidivism drops off. We're not, it's not a revolving door with the prison. And so the money stay compared to sending somebody to prison is huge. It's it, the correction system can look at we made money they can't make money but literally they don't have to spend as much. Drug courts are by far and away cheaper than incarceration. So let's talk about the cost for the second, because I had asked for who's paying it, and you talked about in Larimer County that there's an organization that's getting behind some of the supplies. Is a that's some of the extra stuff? Yeah, right. that's some of the extra stuff. Does the offender or the defendant or the parents of the of a juvenile defendant need to pony up some dough as well? What they have to pony up basically is the cost of urine testing and the $50 a month supervision fee. All the other fines and fees to the court system would have come independent of drug court or not. In other words, if there's restitution, if there's drug surcharges for drug possession, those all have to be paid. It's not we're wiping the finances away, but the only extra thing is that supervision fee, and urine testing. So there's a lot of articles that have come out. New York Times put one out uh, a few years back talking about the downsides and that this stuff is not working as well and that the cost of it compared to probation, because, you know, within probation, you can have one person looking over the case, you know, being a case manager for a lot of people, whereas this one, you've got teams per people. Is this, has that changed since 2013? 
Or are we still looking at kind of a struggle with working on how to get the cost down without losing the quality and increasing the effectiveness of it? Well, I, I, I am not entirely sure. I'm not the person to talk to about all the finances of the whole system. But I can say this, that if a person on regular probation is not succeeding because of continued drug use, they're likely to get referred to a higher level of service, all of whom are more expensive than probation. So like if a, if a person, for example, does not go directly to Division of Youth Corrections, let's say a juvenile doesn't go straight to DYC, if they don't, they can still fail from drug court sure. and, and wind up in DYC, but imagine that they don't. So yes, it's more expensive than regular probation. But what we have is regular probation up against addiction is frequently not enough. If you don't change the addictive pattern and the criminal thinking pattern because the use continues, that's a zero sum. That's just waiting to make the referral to a more restrictive setting. So it seems if you do succeed, then you just save the bundle. Right. So yes, it's more expensive. Is it's not free? That's sure. The county and the state pay a big dollar bill for this kind of program. But again, still cheaper than corrections. So it seems then, you know, because when we talk about failing the drug court program and failing in. Uh, traditional probation, one of the things that people in recovery know is that relapse is part of recovery. Does the right. drug courts allow for a little bit more space for relapse? And is there active education on relapse and relapse prevention? Right. I'm going to shift your thinking vastly by stealing from one of the juvenile drug court judges. Awesome. Relapse is not part of recovery. Relapse is part of addiction. Wow. And yeah, boy, does that change the spin. Wow. That changes the spin. What relapse means is whatever you do for recovery failed, but it's not recovery. And when, when the magistrate said that, I said, I'm stealing it. I am stealing that line. And it just fell out of his mouth. He wasn't thinking about what the meaning so much as I was thinking long term what he just said. I have just I am so, questioning so many things that I have taught and what I know <laughs> doesn't right now, that adjust. is powerful. Yeah, right. Yes. Relapse is part of addiction, not part of recovery. And so several years ago we made a shift from the relapse prevention language to recovery maintenance language. Let's just get that other R word right out of our sentence. And so what do we need to do for recovery maintenance? A small two-word shift, huge thinking shift that comes with it. That's a rewrite so, of one of the oldest books on addiction. Isn't it just? Yes. Yes. It's really yep. So is there yeah. active education about relapse or recovery maintenance? All right. So here's what we do. Now you now you come into my group. Let's say that somebody in the drug court system does indeed relapse. There's first the story of 
you know, what happened and then probably backing up what happened before that and what happened before that. And where did your thinking start to stray from I need to do recovery to I I just want to get high? Where did it change? Where did the thinking change? Where did where did you decide not to use support? Where did you decide not to have your have an outside human being, you know, run the thinking? Well, I'm thinking about I'm thinking about buying some weed and smoking weed this weekend. What do you think? That's a good idea. Well, now what do you think you're going to get? Where are you going? Asking the questions in treatment about. What did you expect to get? What did you really get? Now we're going after criminal thinking, quite possibly, or or just depending on the drug, straight up physical compulsive thinking about the use. So that's what the therapy group is for. Is it relapse prevention? Well, I, I, yeah, I, I try to use the word recovery maintenance. Where did the recovery fall apart? Rather than, um, trying to shore up some dam to keep the relapse from getting into your life. It's like, well, we need to shore up the recovery. Was it because few social contacts? Was it because a bunch of outside stressors? Or is it now at this point related to depression or mental health kinds of problems or thinking? So we get to tease the relapse apart. And then if, if the, if the response is good from, okay, I get what I have to do and I need to go, the drug court team will listen to the therapist ideally and say, let's figure out a way to support where the gap was, shore that up and, and get back on track with recovery as quickly as we can. So rather than think punitively, let's think therapeutically. Let's think what brings about change. What behavior are we trying to change? So that brings in a a piece around, um, you know, resistance to this just coming from a sector of the American population that just wants criminals punished versus the idea that, you know, some criminals, there can be mental illness, there can be addiction. Is that still a, a common way of thinking? Is that still very prevalent or is that something that you're seeing is changing to, yeah, there's more going on here with criminal behavior? I think it's shifting, but I think it's shifting altogether slowly. You know, it's way shifted from where it was 35 years ago. So I have kind of a developmental perspective on doing the work for so long that I can say, well, it's way better than it was. But we still have we still have room to grow and and depend it's it's like any research that somebody might read if you want to find research that says incarceration is the way to go you're going to be able to find it if you want to find research that says drug courts are the way to go you're going to find that too i just i like the idea of follow the money if Addiction is the problem that's creating the illicit, the illegal behavior. Fix the addiction. And it's not so much, I I think that addiction is seen as so much of a societal problem, but really the path out is one person at a time. You can't think that prevention's 
always the ticket. You can't prevent addiction. It's like you can't prevent poverty. If you give everybody a million dollars, you just move the poverty level up a million dollars. Folks are going to become addicted. I think as more information comes out about what really is, especially like with the opioid crisis, we use those terms now. Right. Well, it's not about gateway drugs. It's about emergency rooms and physicians. Wait a minute. That's where the drug was introduced, and it's so effective. Let's not argue with that. It really works. Dan, in your opinion... Even the physicians know some people are going to get addicted. Right. The opioid crisis and how it's it's just grown. So I, I interviewed a family yesterday for admission into our program whose son very quickly became an opioid addict. Right. Unfortunately, right. had a series of surgeries that kept him on painkillers right. for a good six months of his life. He had four surgeries in a six-month right. time period. And then next thing you know, they find right. a scale and powder on it. You know, that... Right. So... Keep going. You're doing good. So well, you and now, what do you got? I, I'm, yeah. I'm as as we look at this, and and I'm I'm hearing you talk. You said you started in this industry, in the industry of of recovery, in 1976. Is that correct? That's when my recovery started, but I started in the the helping profession in '79. Okay, so you you've been in the business for a couple days now, and uh, you've seen the drug war from its inception. To its failure. And I, and I'm, I'm curious as to your input on why we lost the drug war. So Dan, why did we lose the drug war? I think the, to go back to the thinking about where we've gotten with criminal and drug treatment, it goes for me to seeing addiction as unidimensional. Oh, it's addiction. Just stop. You'll be fine. And that is nowhere near the case. That's why I say it's an individual at a time. Where one individual becomes addicted because of six months of painkilling medication, and then they stop the painkilling medication, but the addiction is picked up on its own. That's vastly different from somebody who recreationally, the stigma about opioids is going away at an alarming rate. And so, well, yeah, I just snort a little heroin. It doesn't have the same societal value as it had in 1970. Heroin was like the bottom, the bottom of the earth. And societally, we've kind of come around to, well, you know, it's, it's not, we don't think of it the same way. Society doesn't think about it because very near cousins of it are very available in physicians' offices across the country. So we think about it differently. If a parent decides that, okay, well, let me just start. How does a parent find out if there's a drug court in their community or not? It'd be really useful just to call the district attorney or the probation or the public defender and find out if it exists. Okay. And if one does not exist? Get started typically by a judge saying, this seems to be really helpful in the legal system. Let's see if we can't introduce it into our own. And that's why if you look at like your beginning of our talk, the drug court system described in New York is different from Larimer County. Every judicial district runs it slightly differently. I went and watched a drug court docket in Rochester, New York. When it's that Monroe County one makes a lot of the drug court reports because Judge Schwartz does a great job. 
but their referral system is all different. You are sentenced to the Department of Corrections and then screened for drug court. If you fail at drug court, it's no go back to open court and get a new sentence or change probation. It's see you later, bye. You've already been sentenced. In Larimer County, if you fail out of drug court, you go back to open sentence. It's a slightly different motivator behind folks in New York versus, or at least in Rochester, than might be in Larimer County. They're all different. They're all some drug courts allow recreational, as long as it's not excessive. Who decides what marijuana use? Ours is drug free. We're pretty restrictive about what folks can take, even for a cold. Well, Dan, what is what is next for drug courts? What's coming down the pipe as far as what they're telling you to get ready for or changes that are going to be made? Um, I wish I knew. I um, A year ago in May, there's a treatment court conference. The state does a treatment court conference with community corrections and probation officers, treatment courts of all kinds, families, mental health, substance abuse, DUI. And I was unable to attend last year, and so I, I did not, I didn't hear it. <laughs> so I don't know. I know that we seem to be making satisfactory progress in Larimer County. What's your number one piece of advice for a family who has a child, whether they're an adult child or a juvenile, who's going through the drug court system? What What is it that you want parents to understand about the experience or how best to support it? There's probably, to use your own model, there's probably three things. One, it's not as easy as, it's not as easy as simply stopping. And two, being transparent that if something's gone wrong, help the system know. Playing, well, I won't tell on you this time or whatever. It doesn't help. It doesn't help. And here's another of like that relapse and recovery difference and that's you cannot figure out what you need to do for recovery unless you stop hmm. a person under the influence cannot figure out what they're going to need for recovery they continue to use that's my personal experience that's my personal observation you got to stop to find out all the rest is just great theory but it doesn't mean anything and the third part is it doesn't end graduation drug that's one of the things i don't do the juveniles anymore but one of the things i do with adult drug court is if you successfully complete drug court you are always welcome at any group i do come back you're not done nobody's done so every once in a while somebody will just show up at the door hey thought i'd stop in check out a group wow good for you yeah just the idea of that that you would go back to your drug drug court it required group yeah. to just I know. support or go to help or to get a refueling versus you don't just right. you or just go say, look I you know I thought he was kidding but he's not this is really what happened and and you know to counter that with the idea of someone showing up to a police station says I just need to go back to jail for a few days I just I just showing well, up just put right. me in jail for the night I just need to get my head straight like no one's gonna do that but if no. there's any evidence that drug court's going to work, it's going to be somebody will show up again to a therapy group and drop in just to say hi or just right. to say this stuff works or just to say I need some help. Right. One of my favorites is when somebody shows up and there's, for whatever reason, in a group there's two or three, 
And they'll look at me and say, well, I was going to come to group, but look who's here. We're going to go eat. We're going to go, we're graduates. We're going to go hang around somewhere else together. Nice. Support each other. You bet. Dan, I want to thank you so much for being on this show. This has helped me a lot, really understand what's going on and why people are talking about them, why it's in the news, and to really, for me, find a way that I can I can get active in getting behind the creation or facilitation of more of these. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It was a great time. Parents, teachers, clinicians, the rule is you take care of yourself first, you take care of your adult relationship second, and you take care of your children third, because in that way, we do our best work with our children. I want to thank Dan Bennett for his amazing conversation today. And folks, we will talk again soon. This has been Beyond Risk and Back. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Join us each week for your connection to experts in adolescent health and wellness, recovery, and responsibility, and also to listen to teens talk about their lives in crisis. For more information on our program for struggling teens or me, please go to firemountainprograms.com, join us on Facebook at Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center, or at Beyond Risk and Back. Visit our YouTube channel at Fire Mountain RTC for even even more support with our parent training videos. Special thanks to Mental Health News Radio for their continued love and support of our program. Please go to mentalhealthnewsradio.com to see all of their podcasts. Feel free to email me at Aaron at firemountainprograms.com.